point of entry into today's message is found in Colossians 3, verse 16. I'm not going to read 16 and 17. I'm just going to read the first part of verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Let me repeat that in case you didn't hear it the first time. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. On November 24th, 2019, there was a brother who came to our assembly and he asked an interesting question. How dusty are you? And his point was, not talking about physical dust, his point was, are you following close enough to the Lord Jesus as he travels down the pathways of life that the dust that his feet kick up settles on your clothes. There was a German pastor who wrote a book, perhaps some of you know it. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer opposed the National Socialist Party and as a result was in prison and was eventually strangled by the SS because of his opposition to Adolf Hitler. He died a martyr's death. But before he did, he wrote a little book, and we have that book in English today. It's called uh, The Cost of Discipleship. There's a copy for somebody in the box there. Uh, But don't take it if you're not prepared to be profoundly influenced by a martyr's testimony. There's only one. So I don't know if you're the one I trust the Lord will get it to the right. But don't take it if you're curious. Don't touch it. But if you're serious with or really serious with God, you'll have permission to take it. But do read it. The title of the book in German was Nachfolgende, which means close, following close. So it was really the same question, following close. Well, COVID came and cancellations with it. And so, we didn't hear the brother again, but on Saturday, August 14th in 2021, roughly 21 months later, the Lord called our brother Tim McClellan home to be with himself. It was Tim's last message. And I learned two important lessons from that. And for those of you who sometimes are honored to address the saints in this position, I commend this first lesson to you. See to it that the message you are called to preach is preached as if it was the last message you would ever give. What I'm giving to you today is not the product of 
couple of weeks of study. It's the result of the summation of nearly 65, 60 to 70 years in the Lord. It took me a long time to get to where I am. Preach every message like it's your last because it could be your last. The second thing is it taught me a lesson about the death. When I was much younger, I was my mother was having some work done on the house, and there were some workers there, and I got to know one of them, a very wonderful man. Uh, his name was La- Lawrence, Lawrence, a hard worker. And we were standing by the edge of the cliff. We lived on the edge of a cliff. It was called Cliffside. <laughs> And we heard a faint cry, help, help. And I said, Lawrence, did you hear that? He says, yeah, let's go. So we ran, jumped over the fence and ran down the cliff and got to a, a large area that had once been a quarry. And in the quarry was a deep pit, and the pit had certain meters that were read periodically for gas or electric or water or something. And it was covered by a heavy plate, and the meter reader had opened the plate up, gone down into the pit, and getting output, pulled this massive plate over on himself, injured himself severely, and was trapped and crying out, help. So we lifted the plate, got him off, got the police, got him taken away. A few days later, a lawyer came to me, and he said, would you please tell me your story? And he wrote down everything that I told him as best I could remember, and then he had me sign it. Three years later, two years later, whatever it was, I received a summons from the court in the mail. It wasn't for the jury. I was to be a witness. So we went outside as I was going in, and the the, the attorney who had taken the statement from me says, now I can't tell you how to answer except to say, tell the truth. And he showed me this paper, and I read it. He said, let this refresh your memory, and I did. And so I was duly sworn in to tell the whole truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And I recounted the story as best I understood it. And then the uh, the plaintiff's attorney stood up. This was an attorney for the defense. And the plaintiff's attorney, and he said, Mr. Pratt, are you sure of what you have just said? And the other lawyer, the defense lawyer, stood up and said, Your Honor, I object. We all know there's nothing sure in this world except death and taxes. Well... It was a legal ploy. The judge wasn't happy. He banged his gavel, and he said, overruled. Mr. Pratt, please answer the question. And I thought about it. I said, yeah, yeah, that's three years. I'm not really sure, and that's fine. You're on your way. I never knew what happened. We just left the court, and I went back to school. Nothing sure but death and taxes. It took me 50, 60 years to realize that's wrong. (laughs) Death and taxes aren't sure. The only thing that's sure in this world, the only thing that's certain is that Jesus is coming again. That's certain. Okay? And if he comes today, you won't die. You'll be changed in an instant. So your death isn't certain. His coming is certain, but your death isn't. His coming is also something else. It's a little word we use His coming is imminent. That means he could come today or tomorrow or the next day. And he wanted us to be like that. People who watch for his return. Why? So that we live every day as if it were the last day we would have. Now, maybe he's not going to come this week. Maybe he's not going to come for 70 years. Well, what's going to happen? Well, I'll die. Well, when are you going to die? 
don't know. Do you? Because not only is our Lord's coming imminent, your death is imminent. I don't think Tim got up that morning. I don't think the Lord appeared on the foot of Brother Tim's bed and said, Tim, today you'll be with me in paradise. You know, if the Lord did that for you or me, that would rob all the fear of dying from us. Today you will be with me in paradise. What a thing to say, huh? So, you don't know whether you have tomorrow, whether the Lord comes or you die. You know, yesterday was Diane's and my anniversary. 45 years we've been married. It was also the anniversary of the sudden death of a neighbor of ours. He died on our anniversary. A very dear friend came out of the came out of the bathroom and said to us, well, I can't breathe, laid down on the floor and died. Shot a huge pulmonary embolism. Okay? You don't know. You don't know. So today could be your last day. Now here's the question. You know, what are you going, if you knew today was your last day, would you live your life any differently for example, if you knew that today would be a lesson, would you be so worried about going to the job on Monday? Would you be worried that the leaves haven't been picked up or that the floor in the kitchen is dirty or that the wash hasn't been done? Would you be worried about all that stuff? Would you be anxious? Now, look, life consists of those things. You have to go to work. You have to pick up the leaves. You have to do the wash. You have to clean the house. But you don't have to be anxious about it. Be anxious, says our Lord, for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Okay? Anxiety is something we all live with, no? All right. So what do I do? That's why the Lord said, you don't know the hour that I'm coming. Be ready. So what does that mean, be ready? Well, there's something you've got to understand about your spiritual life. Your spiritual life is an oscillation between two states that occur every single day. We are in one of them right now. You've got a lot of people around you and you interact with them, you'll talk with them, tomorrow you'll get up, you'll have breakfast, it's a family I trust, you'll interact, you'll go to the job, there will be people around you. Those are the parts of our life that are called communal, a community, a common unity, okay, where people get together for different reasons, in different places. But here is a place of worship, we gather for worship. You'll go tomorrow to a place of employment. You'll gather for a place of employment. You'll come home and the family's there. It's a place of rest, of, of communion with the family. So, And so those are the communal aspects. But there's another part of your life, and you need to be aware of it. And that is the condition of solitude. Every single one of you was created to be solitary. It is built into you. There are times when you are all alone. Why is that? 
I don't think many people have perhaps explained this, so I will try. One of the most fundamental aspects of the nature of God is that God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. We believe in God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Ghost. Not three gods, one in essence and undivided. That is the classic statement of the triumphants, the earliest confession the church had to labor to. The other, of course, is the understanding of the the the, um, the the incarnation of our Lord. One is the creed of Nicaea, and the other is the creed of Chalcedon. Great church councils. God is one. When you are one of a kind, what are you? You stand alone. God alone is worthy of praise. God alone is all-wise. God alone is all-loving. God alone is all-powerful. God alone. And the thing is, God loves you. Blows my mind. You had it in these wonderful hymns you were singing, which incidentally are products of solitude. You realize that? It wasn't we, us, our. It was I and God. You are wonderful. I am amazed. I am astounded. So God who loves you wants to interact with you. And in order to do that, because God is solitary, you must come to him in solitude. You are never alone. God is always present with you, always. It's just that you're not one. So you need solitude. You need to be alone. If you do not use the time of solitude that is in your life, maybe early in the morning, maybe late at night, maybe at noonday, a time of solitary prayer, a time of solitary reflection, sometimes referred to as the quiet time. If you do not wisely use that precious time, your spiritual life will be greatly impeded. You will not make the progress that you might make toward being like the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what God's ultimate plan is for you, that you should be conformed to the image of his beloved Son. That's you. You are meant to be shaped into the person of Jesus Christ, a replication, without destroying your personality, incidentally. You need solitude. Now there, I'm going to talk to you about four disciplines in solitude. Okay, The first discipline is the discipline of reading. The second discipline is the discipline of meditation. The third discipline is the discipline of contemplation. And the fourth discipline is the discipline of prayer. Let me start with the first. I mean, let me start with the last, just to touch on it. Sometimes, and I'll give you my personal story here, you know. Sometimes I say, Heavenly Father, and I have the sense that the 
The master of the universe says, yes, Joseph, what is it that you want? Do you ever have a child in a, in a, in a classroom and they put their hand up? <laughs> you know, who knows the answer? And he puts his hand up and he doesn't know the answer. <laughs> Why did you put your hand up? I'm here. <laughs> I want you to notice. And so I think about it, but yes, Joe, what do you want? But I don't want anything. And so I say, I love you. I just wanted to say, I love you. I, I wanted to be here with you. I think the Father is well pleased with that kind of prayer. Why do I love solitude? Solitude is not an end in itself. Solitude is a means to an end. I love solitude because God is solitary. And it's only in solitude, only in the silent moment alone, that if I open my heart, I can hear the word of Christ and let it dwell in my soul, my heart. And when the word of Jesus Christ comes into your heart, you will not think the same, you will not feel the same, you will not speak the same, and you will not act the same. You will be changed. Behold, I stand at the door and if any one hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and sup with it. That's not just about the point where you came to faith and became a believer. That's every single day of your life in solitude. Now, reading. Last time, I spoke to you about three concepts. Knowledge, usually in Proverbs, knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. Now, knowledge is something we gain about things that exist outside of ourselves. Wealth, poverty, security, praise, uh, expertise, driving a car, whatever it is, something, transportation, concepts, ideas, things that are outside of us. Understanding has to do with how those things that are outside of us enter into our lives and impact them. So I talked to you last time about the subject of death. How did I learn about death? My mother said, Joseph, would you help me get Grandpa's body into bed? He died last night. And I grabbed his heel and lifted him up and into bed. I was 12. And I said, Mama, why is Grandpa so stiff? She says, that's rigor mortis. That's how I learned about death, that death exists. Then I was singing Featherstone's hymn in an assembly just like this. And I said, I'd love you in life. I'd love you in death. Third, third hymn, third verse. I'd love you in life. I'd love you in death. I'd love you as long as you lend me my breath and sing should the death do like cold on my brow. I was your age, a little younger. And I said to myself, oh my, I'm going to die. That's understanding. Here's death. Learned about that with Grandpa. Here's other stones, him saying, Joseph, death is going to come to you. 
And then finally, the truth enters the heart. Joseph, yes, Lord, your days are numbered. What does that mean, your days are numbered? It doesn't mean, well, you know, we are, since I, I keep a log, and this is the 631st day since I went into semi-seclusion because of COVID. 631 days. That's numbering. But that's not what it means to number your days. What it means to number your days is what we started off with. This could be your last day. You know, ask any of the people on September 11th who are going into New York City. They thought, oh, it's going to be five women who are pregnant. They were looking forward to their babies. Okay, ask anyone from Herculaneum or Pompeii on AD 79 what the day was going to bring forth. They would be cooked corpses by the end of the day. You don't know when your death is coming. That's what it means to number your days. This could be your last day. Your last day. Hmm? So how? So what does it do? Teach us to number our days that we may apply our heart to what? Wisdom. Where does wisdom come from? The word of God. Gives us wisdom. The word of God entering the heart gives us wisdom. Now, there's reading. That's how we come to a knowledge of things. There's meditation. That's how we come to understanding. And then contemplation is how God enters the scene. It isn't just Joseph, his death. Joseph, death is coming to you. But Lord, seeing that this could be my last day, what do you want me to do? Joseph, the books you have on the shelf that are duplicates aren't going to be very profitable to you in eternity. Give them away. So there they are. (laughs) That's wisdom. Okay. When When he teaches us this could be your last day, that's when wisdom enters the heart. That's when you make the most of the solitary times you have with God. Okay? Now, uh, as far as reading is concerned, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Now, think about reading as, uh, think about reading the word of God like um, driving a bus. Okay? Generally speaking, have you? You're all, you've all been drivers, right? How do they drive in Connecticut? Speed limit fifty-five. <laughs> you know, I can be doing seven, and they'll pass me like I'm standing still. Yeah, there is no speed limit in Connecticut. It's every man for himself. Well, people ride, read their Bibles the way they drive their cars. They are going faster and faster and faster and faster. It's like driving a bus. And so you're driving your bus down the street. And what is a bus driver supposed to do? Well, most people think the bus driver is supposed to get to the station so he can turn the bus around and stay on schedule. Well, what about people? Well, you know. Why are you reading your Bible? Well, I've I'm, got to get through this chapter. I've got to get through this. And you read entirely too much and entirely too fast. And so you're zooming down the street, and you've got to get to the station. I've got to get to the end of the station. And there's this figure. Hey, can I stop the bus? And the figure is the Lord Jesus. He wants to get on the bus. He wants to talk to you about what you just read. I can't do that. I've got to get through this chapter. Zoom, and right on you go. 
right past him. And then the next corner, and zoom again, you know. That's how many of you read your Bible. You read your Bible, and you are not stopping long enough to let the Lord get on the bus. Okay? Do you understand? You know what that does to your spiritual life? You get through the Bible, and you'll have nothing. Now, read more slowly. Now, if you're reading more slowly, and the Lord says, oh, and you stop, you know, it's this. Any man hears my voice. You stop. You open the door. You don't go on cooking dinner. You don't go on cleaning the kitchen. I'll get to you in a little while. No, no, no. You stop. Here's the Lord of glory. Here's the one who spoke the universe into being, knocking at the door of your heart. And you're busy? You're too busy? So, you stop. Now, what this means is this. There is a transition between reading and meditation, and it is critical that you be able to make that transition, that you stop the bus, open the door, and let the Lord in so he can talk to you about the four words you just read. Um, Somewhere in this box. Let's see if I can find it. Oh, okay, here we go. Here's a classic. Daily Strengths for Daily Needs, Mary Tileson. Yeah, Mary Tileson. Prayers, ancient, modern. Do, how many of you have devotionals, you know? My utmost for his highest day, streams in the desert, uh, you know. Well, if you look at your typical devotion, it looks like this. And this is, I'm just opening, March 26. Are they not all ministering spirits? Good question. I, I'm arrested by the question mark. What's the first question in the scriptures? What's the first question in the Bible? Fine, you should know that. Go ahead, go ahead. Don't be good for you. Adam, where are you? You know, that's the question that every pastor has to ask. That question still resonates through all of time. Mary, John, Peter, where are you? Where are you this morning? Where are you tomorrow? Where will you be tomorrow? Where are you? It's not that God doesn't know. He didn't know. You know, he knew where Adam was. Where are they not all? So here's a, a passage by George Eliot. That poorest, that purest heaven be to other souls a cup of strength and some great agony, ere kindle generous ardor, feed pure love, but be sweet the presence of good diffused and in diffusion ever more intense. So shall I join the choir invisible whose music is the gladness of the world. And then there's a whole right up here. Verse. Meditation. One, two, three, four, five, six words in Hebrews 1.14. Somebody stopped and transitioned from reading to meditation. That's what devotionals do for you. They encourage you to meditate, encourage you to stop, think about what the words are saying, and reflect on that. That's meditation. That's hearing the knock. Who's there? And opening the door. Contemplation is what happens when the word comes in. Remember the last time I started with, uh, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God? Huh? Well, 
The word of Christ, when it comes in, is truth. That was a lie, and it corrupted the entire life. But the word of Christ, the word of Jesus Christ, just for the four words, given, it shall be given unto you, can come in and change your entire life if you give him the chance to do so. That's contemplation, and it moves you from an understanding to wisdom. Now, the Lord is not, his hand is not shortened, and he does use experience. And so, I'll tell you a little story. More interesting to tell stories. I was in St. Louis, and I was demonstrating a box. It was a computer that was built by General Electric for servicing that handled all the paperwork normally associated with a helicopter, governed the maintenance on the ship, which is very complex and very costly, and did it in such a way that you could keep up the readiness of the aircraft because the military has to be ready at all times, and you have to have a certain readiness rate. So I'm demonstrating this little box to the Army. I'd gone out with a group of others to report on research, and uh, I was pretty early, and so I got through with my message, and I figured, well, the other guys are briefing on their subject, and courtesy requires that I listen to them, even though I'm not overly excited about them. And the head of this large entourage to St. Louis, to the Army in St. Louis, said, Joe, you're done. Go home. Yeah? Yeah, go home. Now, why was that important to me? Because I had discovered a bookstore in New York City, in the southern bookstore called the Paraclete, and the Paraclete specialized in unusual medieval texts. And I was interested in three particular authors, Meister Eckhart, Johannes Thaler, and Heinrich Suso. You would know them. They've been, they were reading over 500 years ago. Maybe some of you do. Anybody recognize any of those names? Eckhart, Suso, and Thaler? No, I didn't think so. Anyway. Uh, so I was very interested. I want to get a copy. So I said, wow, this is it. I got a chance. I, maybe I can make it. I don't have to make a trip near. So I ran to the airport as quickly as I could, and I'm carrying a box that's worth $50,000. It's a prototype computer. I get on the plane. Oh, I get to the I said, can you, I'm, two, I got, I'm really two flights down. I said, can I go on standby? Sure. So the people load into this plane. And suddenly my name is called, Mr. Pratt, come up, you know, oh, wow, I'm on the plane. I'm going to arrive in New York City maybe two hours earlier. So I get to New York, to LaGuardia, where my car is parked. And it's, I don't know, about the store closed at 5. This is about 4 in the afternoon. I'm, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm trotting this, this computer along. Where's my car? It's on the top floor. I don't know quite where it was. I've forgotten where I put it. So I'm running up and down the aisles. Time is frittering away. And, uh, oh, there's my car. You know, it's now 4.15. I open the trunk, put it in the trunk, close it, get the thing down the spiral staircase, out onto whatever it is, the Cross Bronx or whatever that road is. And uh, I'm going to New York. And presto, traffic lights. Traffic has stopped. And I'm now starting to fret. And I had this sense, the Lord saying to me, Joseph, why don't you ask that I get you the book? I said, okay, Lord, would you please get me this book? It means a lot to me. I'd like to get these, these books, you know. And, uh, you know, the traffic was slow. and It's now 4.30, a little after 4.30, and I still got to get through the tunnel and then down the west side highway, the east side highway, down to southern Manhattan to a place I'm not quite sure where it's at. So I'm fretting a little, and I'm fretting, and I'm sure you should have faith, you should. And it was like the Lord says, Joe, you know, I, you know the prayer of faith? Do you think I'm really going to answer that? 
And I, got, I guess I got a little testy with the Lord. Yeah, I got testy with the Lord. I got, look, you are God. Let's review the bidding. You are God. You do whatever, you can do whatever you want. But I don't know what you're going to do because you're God and I'm not. I just did what I was supposed to do, which was pray. So you do what you want. It's okay. Silence. I got about 15 minutes more. I'm down about 4.45. There's the ramp. I'm off. Well, where is it? It's between 1st Avenue, 2nd Avenue. Which street is it on? It's a number street. I go down. I turn right. It's heavy traffic. South, southern of Manhattan. I'm going down the street. Looking. It's dark by now. It's winter. And I'm looking. The lights are on. You know, nothing. I go around. I go around. Now it's about, oh, I don't know, about five of. And I'm passing. So there's the store. Oh, that's it. That's the store. And I've just gone by. So I now have to come all the way around. Now I've got to find a parking space. Okay? And I got, you know, in southern Manhattan at rush hour, good luck. So I drive around, and suddenly there's a parking space in front of a church with a sign that says no parking. Toe zone. So I parked. <laughs> It's now about, I don't know, a minute after five. I park. I get out of the car. I figure, oh, I hope they don't tow it away. I got this expensive computer. I run across the street. I go up to the door, try it, and it is locked. Oh, man. At least I'm saying to myself, at least I'll figure that I'll, I'll uh, know where the store is in future. And then I looked at the door, and inside the door is a big clump of keys. And there's a key in the lock. I said, wait a minute. Somebody just locked this door. So a little voice says, knock. So I went, knock. And the voice came again, knock already. Boom, boom, boom. You know? And way in the back of the store, this little old lady pokes her head up, gray hair, very petite. And here's this guy. Now, I, I am dressed in an overcoat. I have a Sikh hat on. I, 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 you know, I look like I'm, I blew in off the docks, pounding on her door. You know, it's pitch black out. And she comes up to the door and un unlocks the thing just a little and opens. Yes. And then, oh, wait a lady, I was in St. Louis. I was demonstrating a computer to the army, and they let me go. And I took an early flight, and I got lost in traffic, and this and that. And I'm here, and I'm looking for the works of Johann, Meister Eckhart, Johannes Tauler, and Heinrich Suso, three mystics from the 13th century. I mean, doesn't everybody that looks like a showman say that? <laughs> so she stopped and looked at me and she said, Oh, yeah, come on in. They're right over here. And she went over to the bookcase, boom, 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 picked them out, went to the back, and there they were, and I bought them. I came out. My car was still there. Oh, it's wonderful, you know. And so the, I get into the car. I throw the books down, and I'm riding. Now, of course, I've got midtown traffic, so I'm going north. And it was a Broadway or whatever. I finally get up, and I'm getting on to the Major Deegan, and I'm up by Yonkers Raceway which is quite far north of southern Manhattan. And it was as the Lord says, well. And I looked and I said, wow. 
you answered my prayer. I'm real fast, you know, real fast. You answered my prayer. And he said, yes. But first, you had to ask. And then you had to seek. And then you had to knock. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. And knock and it will be opened unto you. And that's the kingdom of heaven. And that's my story. That's how the truth is in my heart. Through experience. Don't sell your experience short. God changes your life through your experience. <clears throat> when these have had their way, and incidentally, this is not a methodology, because prayer just kind of surrounds the whole thing. What is prayer? I just let me ask you, what is prayer? I mean, is it asking God for stuff? Is it worshiping God? Well, yeah, I'm all those things are involved. What is at its core, at its core, what is prayer? What is central to prayer? I put you in a dark room. There's nobody around you. You're feeling sorry for yourself. You're all alone. And I'm there in silence. And, and you're sitting there bemoaning your fate and saying, Hi, it's me. You say, Oh, Joseph, are you here? What do you do? You start talking. Central to prayer is the awareness of God. You cannot pray if you are not aware that God is listening. Cannot. The question is not, are you aware of God's presence? The question is, do you love God? Prayer is the most fundamental expression of love for God. I love my wife, and I love being with her, you know, and we're all alone. We share our solitude, and that's like God. So when you pray, it's really an expression not of, I need this or I need that. It's not an expression of trust. It's not even an expression of worship. It is ultimately an expression of love. Joseph, what is it, Joseph? Well, I wanted to say I love you. That's prayer, in its essence. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart and mind and soul. That's why prayer is not part of the spiritual life. It is the spiritual life. Okay. Um, all of that leads to a transformation. The transformation leads to the, the discipline of communion in the communal state, which is works. Could be witness to the unbeliever, could be a work of ministry to the saints, it could be your walk with another person, but it leads to works. The classic names in Latin are lectio divina, meditatio, contemplatio, ora et labora. And labora in Latin means suffering. Because if you want to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. You live a life of self denial and self sacrifice. That's what pleases me. That's what brings reward. Okay, transformation. Again, just one other word. I guess I'm over. Am I, am I on the time? Okay. Transformation. Thy will be done. Thy will be done in me. 
that I, my heart should be made like the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ because God looks at the heart. When he looks at your heart, does he see the heart of his son? Uh, that's what he wants to see. That's what he's looking for, a heart that loves him. Thy will be done in me. Thy will be done by me. The Lord humbled himself and became obedient. Without humility, there's no possibility of obedience. Thy will be done. Our Lord would say, I do always the things that please the Father. Well, what things in particular? For nearly 30 years, it pleased the Father that he should work in a carpenter shop making yokes and building buildings. And he'll say, my yoke is easy. Why? Because he'd made them before. He took the time to fit them to people's shoulders so they didn't bind, didn't chafe, and made the burdens life. We forget, he was a carpenter. He built houses. He knew what it was to dig down in the hot day and dig down till your, your tool hit the clink of bedrock so that you could build a house on a solid rock so that the storms wouldn't sweep it away. He would not take a job of building a house in a wadi. Okay? He had integrity. Jesus built a house. It wasn't going to fall. Thy will be done by me. That's obedience. Make no mistake. The spiritual life is all about obedience. That has not changed, and it never will. I do always the things that please the Father. Then the third thing is providence. There is nothing in your life or in mine that is not a manifestation of divine governance. We certainly don't understand it, but it is all pervasive, and it is omnipotent. It's irresistible. And so our Lord will say, my father worketh hitherto, that's providence, and I work. That's cooperation with providence. Thy will be done through me. Thy will be done in me. Thy will be done by me. Thy will be done through me. So I'm going to close with a story. And uh, I think I promised this the last time around. It's a story about a grain of sand. About 120 years old now. And incidentally, the reason I pick a grain of sand, I believe, is that when Abraham uh, was told, you're going to have children, the Lord said, look, look out at the, at the desert there and see if you can count the number of grains of sand. A child as a grain of sand. Let me ask you something. When was the last time when you went to the beach that you picked up a grain of of sand. You probably picked up a lot in your shoes, which you didn't like, but when was the last time you picked up a grain of sand and looked at it and said, ooh, let me study this grain of sand. Ah, you know, you, you, I'm going to say you're nuts. You're nuts. A grain of sand. But God made that grain of sand. He made that So what can he do with a grain of sand? What can he do with you, grain of sand? Well, I'll tell you. Diane had a, um, his, her mother knew a teacher, mother was a teacher, and she knew a teacher by the name of Story, Mary Story. Mary Story married a man named Jess Langdon. Jess Langdon was interesting because Jess Langdon was uh, the son of a veterinary in Montana. And when Teddy Roosevelt lost his mother and his wife within a few days. He was so destroyed, he gave up his whole political career and everything and went out west to start a cattle ranch. He was going to become a cattle rancher. And, of course, if you've got a cattle, you have to have a vet to take care of the cattle. Well, you know, there was this uh, vet out there uh, who, who uh, um, Langdon, Mr. Langdon, and he became Teddy Roosevelt's vet. 
Well, he had a son, a teenage son. He was about 16 or 17, Jess. And Jess got very attached to Roosevelt. Well, along comes the Spanish-American War. Roosevelt, ever bellicose and anxious for glory, leaves cattle ranching, goes back to Washington, and organizes the Rough Riders, kind of an independent group. Huh? Jess hears about that, and he says, I'm, I'm with him. I'm going to become a Rough Rider. Jess Langdon was a Rough Rider. And uh, so he hopped a freight train, hobo-like, from Montana all the way to Washington, and finally found his way to Roosevelt, who was coming down the stairs, and he says, Mr. Roosevelt, I'm going to join your Rough Riders. And Roosevelt looked at him, and he says, can you ride a horse? Yeah, that's criteria, can you ride a horse, right? And Langdon said, I can ride anything with four legs. He says, you're hired, go upstairs and sign in. So Langdon went upstairs, and <clears throat> the, 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 they eventually got down to, to, uh, to uh, Cuba. And incidentally, I learned all this from the Internet. Because early in that, Diane and I were riding around the country, and we came to, what was that middle? Mil Millerton, Millerton, Millerton. And Diane says, that, I think that's where Langdon lived. So we stopped in the town of Millerton, got into the, the office, and said, you guys know a guy named Jess Langdon? Oh, Jess Langdon, he used to be the champion of the Veterans Day Parade, and this and that, you know. And, my goodness, they took us around for a whole day. They showed us where he lived. They told us his story. I was amazed. And we went home. I did the Internet. I searched on the Internet, and I got 40,000 hits on Jess Langdon. 40,000. Why? Because not only was Jess Langdon a rough rider, he was the last surviving member of the Rough Riders. He was the last man standing. Why was that? Because when he went to Cuba, they were going up a hill, and it had a high embankment. They were under fire. I don't think it was San Juan Hill, some other. And they had an embankment, and nobody could get up the hill, and they wanted to advance and attack the position. So Langdon took his rifle, I don't know what it was, some kind of a bolt action Springfield or something, with a bayonet, and he jammed the thing into the middle of the hill and held the one end, and all the guys that were following with him, they all used it like a step. They all stepped on his rifle and up on the bank, on the rifle, up on the bank, on the rifle, up on the bank. And then finally, when he pulled it out, they pulled him up, and they were, they were going, and, was, and they were under fire. So Langdon... Uh, discharged his first round, and it was a bolt action. He pulls the bolt back to engage the thing, and he's pushing the bolt, and it won't go in. Because in the process of stepping on his rifle, somebody left a grain of sand that got into the bolt, and it jammed the bolt. So he's working this bolt, and finally he, he says, ah, he pushes it into the ground to try and push down, and as he's pushing it like this, a bullet pierces right over his head and through the back of his smoky stover hat. Had that grain of sand not been in the bolt, he would have taken the round through his head, and he would not have been the last of the Rough Riders. Diane, he wouldn't have married Mary's story. Diane would never have heard of him. I would never have heard of him, and I'd be telling a different story. That happened 120 years ago, and it's not about Langdon. It's about divine providence. It can take a piece of grain of sand and change a man's life. That's the power of God. Okay. O grain of sand, you can change the course of the history of the world if only 
You will let God use you. Okay? Let's close. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to ponder the desire you have for each one of us to stand still and know that you are God. To open our minds and our hearts to your word so that the word of our Lord Jesus Christ can dwell in our hearts by faith richly, transforming us, changing us, and making us serviceable in your kingdom. Again, we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.